Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp at the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. We're here today with Professor Brian Owensby. He's the professor in the Department of History and director of the Center for Global Inquiry and Innovation at the University of Virginia. Likewise, we have Professor Richard Ross, David C. Baum, Professor of Law and Professor of History at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Professor Ross is also Director of the Symposium on Comparative Early Modern Legal History. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. So we're here today to discuss uh, their new edited collection, Justice in a New World, Negotiating Legal Intelligibility in British, Iberian, and Indigenous America, published just recently by uh, NYU Press. So first off, I'd like to uh, discuss this the selection of this wonderful cover um, from the early 19th century. Uh, can you, either of you or both, explain uh, the cover and why you selected it for this particular collection? Well, at the heart of the project is um, consideration of negotiation and dialogue between uh, Native peoples and settlers. And we wanted to have a visual image that suggested that. So this image uh, has this uh, aura of discussion about it, and it was just visually arresting. So that's why we were drawn to it. In the acknowledgments for this volume, you explain that the collection emerged out of a 2014 conference on meetings of justice in New World Empires settler and indigenous law as counterpoints to the symposium on comparative early modern legal history. Uh, Professor Richard Ross, who I've already noted, oversees the symposium, which gathers at the Newberry Library in Chicago. By way of introduction, can Professor Ross first discuss the symposium and then Professor Owensby comment on the comparative goals of the conference? Sure. The symposium on uh, comparative early modern legal history meets every two years to discuss a topic in the comparative legal history of the Atlantic world in the years roughly 1492 to 1830. And by design, we recruit a mixture of historians, social sciences, social scientists, and law professors. In the past, we've organized conferences on a variety of topics, including citizenship, religion and social discipline, legal pluralism, the French Atlantic. We have a conference coming up in October uh, 2018 on the rule of law. Yeah, I, uh, Richard and I uh, talked about this conference before we gathered, and what we concluded was that while there was robust historiographical work uh, individually on the legal regimes of Anglo-America and of uh, Spanish and Portuguese America, we realized that despite those uh, literatures, there had been very little overlap between the two, very little communication between scholars on either side of what had become a sort of uh, historiographical divide that no one dared cross. And so it occurred to us in 
in good measure because the the legal regimes were so distinct from one another that there might be some uh, considerable advantage in thinking comparatively across this boundary. And so as we began to, to talk, it became increasingly clear that there was a great deal to discuss and that if we could find the right scholars, uh, the people who were willing to, uh, to, to come out of their own fields, gather uh, with uh, people from, uh, from other uh, historiographical traditions, that we might be able to generate something really quite interesting. And I think that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, may I add just a little bit more on that, Brian? Please. So the conference didn't focus on the grand debates about the justice of imperial conquest and dispossession, but on notions of justice animating workaday negotiations and lawsuits. And we were curious about how settlers and Indians misconstrued the other side's legal commitments while learning about them. And both sides uh, strained to use each other's law as a political, strategic, and moral resource. So at the heart of what we were looking at is the problem of what we've termed legal intelligibility. How and to what extent did settler law and native law become intelligible, tactical, technically, morally, to the other side? And as Brian mentioned, we address this through two axes of comparison, one between natives and settlers and the other between British and Iberian America. Now, our key word is intelligibility, which we will talk about at various points uh, today and in the volume. Um, And this means more than the process by which settlers and natives in different empires came to understand words and concepts. More broadly, law became intelligible as natives and settlers began to appreciate the values and histories behind an idea, the concepts to which an idea was tacitly linked, its range of uses in a given culture, its limitations. So before settlers and natives could try to learn from each other or outmaneuver each other or accommodate each other, they had to understand something of their interlocutor's legal notions. And at least some degree of intelligibility then was a precondition for what historians call jurisdictional politics or popular justice or strategic engagement with law. Can you elucidate a bit on why the volume focuses on specifically Spanish, Portuguese, and British legal regimes in the New World? So there were multiple European empires in the Americas, including the French, the Dutch, the Swedish, the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese. We picked the English and the Spanish and Portuguese because these were the empires with the most land, population, wealth, longevity. And none of our three cases was permanently absorbed into the others. So in the middle 17th century, the Swedish and part of the Dutch Empire, New Netherlands, gets absorbed into English America. And in the 18th century, so does French Canada. But the English, Spanish, and Portuguese settlements produced hundreds of years of history, which allows for extensive comparison. And all of the three empires have inspired very rich historical writing. One other additional advantage is the English and Iberian empires had dissimilar notions of justice and dissimilar dissimilar patterns of settler-native relations, as we can discuss later. But these differences um, allow for profitable comparison. Professor Owensby, do you have anything to add? No, I don't. uh, I think that, that explains the project pretty well. So why do uh, both of you contend that indigenous vassalage and substantive justice 
as well as sovereignty, stand in sharp relief among the varieties of difference between Spanish and English legal regimes. And what about Portugal? Well, in in, in approaching this question, uh, one of our challenges was to to try to bring to the fore um, uh, something that most people don't really pause to think about. Um, in in this situation, and that is that among the things that made the world the new world so new was the presence of indigenous people. Um, Mexican historian Edmundo Gorman argued uh, long ago that America's novelty was an ontological proposition. Uh, it wasn't merely the discovery of a new geographical place; it was also a means by which posi- uh, Europe repositioned itself. Uh, in the world, in its own imagination, and in the imagination um, of others. America, O'Gorman argued, had to be uh, invented in order to accommodate this reconfigured reality uh, regarding European, the, the European cosmological imagination. Part of that reconfiguration involved figuring a place for the indigenous people in the so-called New World, and that part of that was a process of determining how they would be understood in terms of law and justice. And this was not only a legal uh, matter, but also a theological matter, especially for the Spaniards, perhaps less so um, for, for, for the British. Spain faced this problem of, of, of how to account for and explain and relate to the indigenous people um, before uh, the, the, the British did, uh, and before there were English settlers in, the new, in what we call the New World. What we're trying to do in the in the volume is argue that Spanish notions of justice and law led to the Indians' inclusion within a social order presided over by a Spanish king as vassals, um, to the Indians' inclusion uh, to the Indians' inclusion within a social order um, that that led to the development of a body of law that came to be called Derecho Indiano. And our argument here is that this represents. Uh, certain rights of substantive justice for the indigenous people in the New World, at least in the Spanish Empire. Um, It it was necessary for the Spanish crown to approach things this way because the only claim to legitimate sovereignty that the Spanish Empire had was rooted in the Pope's partitioning of the world um, in the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1493, which required that any indigenous people encountered in the New World be converted to Christianity. Now, England had faced an entirely different situation arriving over a century after the Spaniards did. And their goal was primarily uh, to, the question that they faced was how to assert sovereignty over areas that were presumptively under Spanish control already. So to do so, they were prepared to deny the Indians the status that they had gained after the debates of the mid-16th century in Spanish realms, beginning with Vitoria and Las Casas and Sepulveda, that ultimately required that the Indians be recognized as Spanish vassals. And so, whereas Vitoria had, had, had by that point recognized the Indians as having true sovereignty over themselves, the England, in, the, in England, the Hacklets and Gentili at Oxford claimed that the Indians had no rights of sovereignty, whatever. They were not uh, in the, in, in the independent peoples. It wasn't clear how they should be dealt with, nor were they to be included in a British social order. From this perspective, uh, the continent was open to whomever might settle or improve it, um, which opened the door to to English occupation of the northern reaches of what Spain would have thought of as its own realms, what became North America. Now, Portugal was somewhat distinct from both the English and the Spanish cases because while in principle 
Portugal was bound by the Treaty of Tordesillas. Um, Portugal joined with the Spanish crown between 1580 and 1640. Um, and that was the period when Spanish law was laid down for the New World. During this period and after, Spanish and Portuguese law converged, at least on paper. But after separation between the Spanish and Portuguese kingdoms in 1640 uh, and limited enforcement of the law thereafter in Brazil, in Portuguese realms, at least with regard to uh, indigenous people, uh, it seems that the Indians were left without the same access to legal pro uh, process as had been or as continued to be the case in Spanish provinces. And obviously we need more work on this. We have one essay on the, on the on Portuguese realms. This is an area that is now beginning to garner um, more scholarship. Professor Ross, do you have anything to add? Um, I, I think uh, Brian handled that one very well, so I'm not going to add anything. How and why did Iberian debates over well, as well as the post-English Civil War emphasis on sovereignty as the legitimation of law, result in a British dearth of Iberian-derived doctrines, such as personas miserables, as well as the legislation and aggregated lit litigation, which, for example, the Ibero-American Law of the Indies? Right. Well, um, I, I hesitate to think of it in terms of a British dearth of, of Iberian-derived doctrines. The, the fact of the matter is that, that the Spanish and, and, and British empires faced very, very different situations and came from very different philosophical backgrounds to these kinds of questions. Um, Vittoria's accomplishment in the, in, in the 1530s um, was to insist that the New World's indigenous people could not be treated as just one more resource, as one might treat um, the other natural resources of the New World. And he concluded, nor could they be reduced to the status of natural slaves, what Aristotle would have called natural slaves, that is, people who by their very nature needed to be ruled for their own good. That was a proposition that was raised in the 16th century, that was debated and considered by the crown. And the ultimate conclusion was that the indigenous people in the New World were not natural slaves. Um, it, and thus, if these these people in the new world were human and not natural slaves. And then there was only one other thing they could be. And that was vassals. Uh, and so ultimately the Spanish uh, objective had been to create uh, of these indigenous people, make them into Christian vassals. And yet, and there's pretty ample historiography on this at this point, over the course of the 16th century and into the beginning of the 17th century, uh, indigenous people were routinely treated as though they were slaves, in fact, especially by mine owners, by other people who wanted to put them to work. Um, they were entitled to law in principle, and they were denied it very often in practice. The gap between the justice promised by their status as vassals, by the law, and on the, on the one hand, and what was happening on the ground on the other, grew so wide by the late 16th century, the crown officials, Spanish crown officials, began to employ a new language to, with regard to the Indians. This was the, the language of personas miserables, uh, wretched people. Now, this, this amounted to an, an innovative expansion of a much older Spanish legal term. The, the term originally, miserables, was meant to protect widows and orphans uh, and other people lacking paternal protection. Um, but that term was then applied to the new world and made sufficiently elastic 
in order to cover an entire ethnic group, in this case, the indigenous people. The, the, the theory went that their weakness in the face of the power of Spanish settlers and their vulnerability to the depredations of, of Spaniards required the king to protect them as protecting his vassals was the monarch's first obligation, the, the, the protection of the weak and the vulnerable. As we make clear in the volume and in the introductory essay, this principle is honored as much in the breach as in the keeping, but at a minimum, it made a set of legal tools for indigenous people to seek their own justice. This was rooted in notions of, of, of substantive justice that were philosophical and, and, and theological for understanding the Indian's place in the new world social order. English law, British law, was uh, a matter of considerable contrast for it was rooted in something like an ancient constitution, more a matter of tradition than of the sort of natural law tradition uh, upon which Spaniards drew, which was presumed to be universal in its coverage. Um, this, this notion of an ancient English constitution had no particular reason to find a place for the Indians of the New World. They just really didn't fit into, into that framework, other than as other peoples who might need to be negotiated with, who would have to be encountered and, and might lead to certain kinds of conflicts and, and, and contentions that would have to be resolved. Now, this idea had been challenged by Hobbes late in the 17th century with the emphasis on the sovereign's authority and will. Um, but these were very different notions. Hobbes's idea was a very different notion from uh, the English idea of an ancient constitution. But Hobbes's idea and the idea of an ancient British constitution converged on the notion that little was owed to the indigenous people in the New World. Law, from this perspective, derived from antiquity, that did not really apply to the indigenous people since they were not a part of that antiquity. They hadn't shared in those experiences and that historicity. And after Hobbes, law was what the sovereign said it was. In this case, the, the, uh, the, the king of England, who ruled by divine right, um, rather than as a matter of what natural law demanded. From, from that perspective of, 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 the, of the ancient constitution and the Hobbesian notion of sovereignty, there simply was no need for something like the Spanish doctrine of miserables. Now, that being said, some attempts were made, and, and um, Dixon's chapter in the, in, the, in the volume makes it clear. But those experiments, the idea of creating something like um, what, what Richard has called a derecho britannico indiano, a, a, a British uh, uh, law of the Indies, um, those experiences or experiments never really took. Um, perhaps because the idea was simply not one that made much sense in terms of the foundational understandings of what notions of law and justice were owed to indigenous people. Um, and this is why, uh, as the, you know, the premise of the question of why these more robust doctrines never really developed in British realms as they did in Spanish realms. Richard, do you have something you might add to this? Uh, yes. Um, I think it's very important that the Spanish Empire conceived of indigenous people as subjects or vassals of the crown. Th this was not the case in English America. The default rule there was that Indians were foreigners unless naturalized. Now, certain Indian nations took on the status of tributary nations with settler oversight of more or less of their affairs. But tributary status was negotiated by treaty. It was not presumed as a corollary of English settlement. 
Because natives were foreigners rather than vassals, the English had no political or ideological expectation that they should protect Indians. There were limited protections extended by colonial legislation to tributary nations and Indians living outside tribal ties within English settlements. So, for instance, there were restrictions on exploitive contracts and unfair labor indentures. But these protections were exceptional. More typically, the terms of English and Indian relations were set through negotiated treaties where the Indians, as foreigners, were conceived of in modern terminology as counterparties. The English hoped to obtain as much advantage for their own side as possible, consistent with not unduly provoking the Indians. The English settlers didn't think they had to sacrifice their own advantages because the crown's political theory cherished the Indians as vassals cared for by a justice-giving king. As a practical matter, um, the English didn't live off the Indians' tribute and labor as the Spanish did. So the Spanish had an interest in keeping up the Indians' numbers and protecting them, lest the workforce in the mines and in agriculture diminish too much. The English had no such interest. The loss of Indian population meant that the Indians would be more ready to sell land and could field smaller war parties. For our listeners, can you both explain the four gradient parameters of, and perhaps the limitations to, and we've arrived, the analytical category of legal intelligibility? So intelligibility isn't a single thing in essence, and nor is unintelligibility. They can, they can be understood and assessed in a variety of different ways or over different gradients. So first... A settler or native could grasp the literal, the literal words used by his interlocutor, but not understand the larger values and history behind the idea or, or practice conveyed by those words. So a Mohawk Indian, for instance, might learn about an English jury and know what the word meant without understanding, say, the relation of the jury to the judge or the deep and varied political significance that Englishmen attributed to the jury. An English settler might learn that natives whose relative was murdered had a right to obtain compensation under threat of private vengeance. But the settler would not know the limits to the process, its place in the overall Indian political system, and so forth. Okay, second variation. An idea or practice might be intelligible in respect to a given conflict, but less so in respect to a different conflict. So the Mohawk Indian in our last example might, over time, come to understand how a jury worked in a murder trial, only to be newly confused when a different kind of jury helped lay out boundaries in a town or present suspected offenders to the court for trial. Okay, third mode of variation. So far, we've been discussing what a legal institution or practice does. So what does the jury or covering graves do? But a related question is what the institution or practice can be deployed strategically to do. How can it be deployed to obtain one's ends? And what are the limits to those deployments? And fourth, so far, we've been assuming that a legal practice or idea has a stable meaning within native and settler society, and that each side's trying to comprehend the other's uh, meanings. But of course, there were multiple native nations and multiple colonies, and each of these was internally differentiated. 
So the role of the jury and magistrate differed between 17th century Puritan Massachusetts and slave-owning Virginia, and the role and practice of covering graves differed between various native nations. So there are then four different gradients along which settler and native practices could be more or less intelligible. Yeah, what I'd like to add for this is just a, a reminder to, to, to listeners that how crucial it is to recognize that this gradient we propose is an analytical tool. And we don't really, we don't mean it to be a description of historical reality. It's a tool that as historians we use to try to make sense of the complexity of, 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 of a given past. Thus, it's an effort to account for the inherent complexity of the sorts of encounters that we can see in the various sources that, that the, the participants in the volume confront. Now, with that being said, the four parameters that, that uh, uh, Richard laid out flag what we see as the crucial issues in any effort by parties to make themselves understood and also to prevail. Thus, we emphasize first what lies behind legal ideas, values, histories. Second, uh, uh, we're concerned with what happens in light of the concrete facts of an encounter. And third, with respect to the formulation and application of particular strategies or deployments, as, as Richard was uh, referring to them. And then finally, recognizing that parties' understandings may or may not converge on the meanings of their actions. Now, to this extent, our point is that we can't understand actions taken by parties as fully as we might without a concern for these kinds, an explicit concern for these kinds of issues. Now, you asked about the limitations of the conceptualization, and I think it's, that's an important question. Because this is an analytical tool, it's going to function for certain purposes, and it's going to strain when we try to apply it to other things. The way scholarship advances is by pushing at these kinds of limitations. Uh, to a large extent, one of the limitations of this conceptualization are those of any typology. Our framework we contend, can help us recognize different sorts of issues as we approach legal encounters in the, in the sources, but it cannot tell us with great precision how they should relate to one another and how we should balance them against one another. To a large extent, that is a matter of the kinds of background judgments that historians make all the time. And part of our point is that those background judgments, rooted in particular often Western notions of what law and justice are and how they should work, very often truncate our analyses, especially when we approach people with, uh, who operate according to very different legal and normative traditions, such as uh, indigenous uh, Americans. Our contention is that the explicit comparison across legal cultures is one way to begin addressing this sort of problem. Now, the perhaps greater challenge is that we still have a relatively underdeveloped understanding of native conventions and superordinate, you know, uh, normative ideas regarding human conflict and its resolution, um, and this, as we note in 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 the last pages of the introductory essay, is um, one of the more important areas, broad areas for future research. Can both of you elaborate on improving understanding and persisting incomprehension as two historiographical perspectives on how different groups of natives and settlers understood elements of the other's notions of justice? Sure. Um, part of what we're arguing is that we do have to pay attention to the historical and philosophical background to legal interactions. 
legal cultures, whether, whether it's British legal culture or Spanish legal culture or indigenous legal culture, are the accumulation uh, of precepts and expectations regarding the role of law and justice in given circumstances. The challenge of the new world for everyone who participated in it was precisely its novelty, as, as um, I, I suggested at the beginning, which a novelty which in a sense was never really fully under, understood, never, never really fully grasped, remained in a sense new for a very long time. Neither side to any given encounter ever fully understood the other, even as they tried to make sense of things in specific concrete circumstances where particular interests were uh, uh, at stake. Our argument is that we have to understand that law on the ground never means that well-recognized principles played out according to well-recognized procedures to reach, to reach easy-to-recognize outcomes. That, that's just not how the law works, even when everyone understands what's going on. In the best of circumstances, law, especially in this intercultural con uh, context, was a, a kind of mashup of assumptions and expectations that play out or played out in the heat of encounters, which may have been more or less well plotted out. Um, and what we're trying and, and what our and what the, the authors of the essays in the collection are trying to do is precisely to pay attention to that mashup and the way in which things don't ever quite go according to plan, and yet people have to come to some kind of concrete outcomes. Um, this is the more the case in the intercultural circumstances of the new world. And what we're arguing is that we can't make sense of these encounters if we don't take this point very seriously. Professor Ross, do you have anything to add? Uh, yes. So as we thought about intelligibility, what we wanted to emphasize in the volume was local variability and ebb and flow in how intelligibility uh, played out on the ground. But to make that framework clearer, we wanted to set it off against other frameworks that were implicit in scholarship. So you won't find other scholars talking openly about intelligibility in our terms, but they do focus on ha ha the extent to which natives and settlers came to understand each other's legal commitments. And there are two big stories you can find in the scholarship. One is about gradually improving understanding, and the other is about persisting incomprehension. So Let's start with improving understanding. The basic idea here is that over time, settlers and indigenous people gradually came to a better, though never full, appreciation of each other's legal principles. And there is some evidence for this approach. So in British America, for instance, natives and settlers fairly quickly grasped their contrary approaches to handling murder. Colonists expected a public trial of the guilty, while Indians demanded compensation to the victim's family to stave off uh, retaliatory private violence. Or take land sales. Early sales of Indian land to colonists tended to produce confusion because settlers believed they had purchased full and exclusive ownership, while natives assumed they had merely given the English the privilege to use land alongside themselves. But within a few years or a few decades, the other side came to uh, grasp the other's position and bargained accordingly. So these are bits of evidence that would sustain an idea of improving understanding. But then there's another big picture that you can find in the scholarship, which is about persisting incomprehension. Now, why would that be? Well, to begin with, the English didn't acknowledge indigenous law as binding in any way, giving them a reason to look beneath the surface of what appeared to be strange ideas. They didn't treat Indian law as one of the various 
colonial and imperial and transnational laws whose complicated interaction governed affairs within the English settlements. So the reach of indigenous law then was a matter for diplomacy, but it wasn't a choice of law problem within the core areas of European colonization. And treaties that specified the circumstances under which Indian offenders would be tried under English law exempted settlers from Indian justice. So indigenous law mattered politically in relations with natives, but it exerted almost no claim over colonists as law. And what's interesting is this largely dismissive approach to native law set the North American English colonies apart from contemporaneous British imperial areas, no less than from the Spanish realm. So consider the East India Company settlements in Madras and Calcutta. These operated not only under crown and parliamentary permissions, but also under grants and contracts from South Asian sovereigns, which authorized jurisdiction over native residents and shaped the concepts through which the English governed. So the English needed to deploy South Asian legal concepts in order to rule. In certain classes of cases, the East India Company and English tribunals uh, reached or ratified decisions based on what they imagined to be Hindu and Muslim law. And Englishmen acknowledged these legal traditions as sophisticated and impressive. So the contrast of all of this to North America is striking. Grants from Native Americans did not provide permission for the English settlement or suggest techniques for government. Settler tribunals did not ratify decisions made under Seneca or Cherokee law. And colonists wondered aloud to what extent so-called barbarous natives actually had law, as opposed to custom and will and public opinion. The English in the, uh, North America didn't inquire into and respect Pequot law as some long-standing tradition of high intellectual accomplishment. So all of this would play into this picture of persisting incomprehension. Let me, let me just add one, one final note on this. It's a comparative one to what Richard was just saying, and that is there is a striking contrast to what happens in Spanish America because Indian costumbre, or what's known as customary, custom or customary law, is considered a source of law by Derecho Indiano, which is not to be disturbed unless there are very good reasons for it to do so, or unless it comes to be seen as being in direct conflict with natural or divine law. But otherwise, it has the same standing at law that, that, that Spanish law would. And this is something that, that really uh, is a sharp distinction between the two imperial realms. You know, Professor Ross mentioned local variability and ebb and flow in the context of legal intelligibility. In Ibero-America, how was law a function of hierarchy and power relations that culminated in the Juzgado, whereas in British America, distinctions between independent nations, plantation and tributary nations, and even individuals living without tribal ties only served as provenance for varieties of indigenous intelligibilities? Right. That's a good question. And one of the points we're, we're responding to uh, in, in the volume is the idea that we can attend exclusively to strategic decision-making by, by participants in these kinds of encounters. Now, it's certainly true that each side uh, in any given legal encounter is going to be pursuing its own interests in a more or less clear-eyed way to achieve certain reasonably well-defined goals. There is no question that this is part of what goes on, and but 
as anyone who's ever been in a legal setting knows, knowing what one's interests are in a given legal encounter is not always transparently obvious. And that's even assuming that both parties are part of the same legal culture. What we're Part of what we're suggesting is that we have to be willing to look into the indeterminacy um, and uh, the, the indeterminacy of legal encounters in terms of whether and the extent to which they can make sense to the parties that are involved. That's what we mean by intelligibility. And this issue of intelligibility is even more of a, a question when the encounter takes place across boundaries of legal culture and understanding. Our goal in the volume is to signal this point and provoke scholars to take this more explicitly into account um, so that they're not just assuming that, um, that, that strategic decisions are, are driving um, the agenda in all cases. Now, we, we, it's possible to be somewhat more concrete about this. In Ibero-America, Spanish realms, indigenous people, at least in principle, had access to law and justice from roughly the middle of the 16th century, 1550s, uh, which is when they were more or less, which is more or less when they were recognized as vassals of the king. Now, once that idea had been recognized, they could not, at least in principle, be denied access to the law. Now, the fact that in practice they so often were, in part because enforcement of the king's will was so different, uh, so difficult across the vast distance of the Atlantic Ocean, and also in part because of the tension between wanting simultaneously to exploit and also to protect the Indians, uh, was what prompted the reforms that brought the juzgado that you mentioned, uh, Brian, into existence in New Spain. Now, Peru was not Mexico. And while there were reforms, legal reforms in the Andes towards the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th, and they were similar in spirit to the reforms that took place in Mexico, um, they worked out very differently in practice. Nevertheless, even there, indigenous people quickly took to the idea that they were entitled to pursue justice before royal judges. Indeed, there, there was within the Spanish Empire a widespread sense among indigenous people that they were entitled to the king's justice and that they were entitled even to be heard by the king himself through petitions that they might write him, both in indigenous languages as well as in Spanish. Now, although there was no notion of precedent operative here, or what lawyers would call in the Anglo-American legal system, no stare decisis, at least in principle, the, the Indians were to be judged by the same tenets of justice that apply to all of the king's vassals, while recognizing that they occupied a unique position in the grand uh, scheme of, the, of Spanish imperial realms. Now, contrast this to British America. There... Indigenous people were always held at arm's length, or mostly so, treated as members of different nations rather than as vassals, distinguished by the fact that they're somewhat odd circumstances. Each indigenous encounter thus was sui generis, a thing unto itself, responsive to the particular encounter and interests at stake in given circumstances. Such encounters were often as much negotiations as anything else. Law and legal thinking was relevant as a broad framework within these kinds of encounters and arrangements were worked out, and certainly broad notions of fairness were in play. But for participants in these encounters, the problem was to determine what principles were at stake and what a fair or just outcome might be, which might be, um, more than anything, whatever outcome could be reached without hostilities breaking out, a point that, that Richard has already made. Now, preventing 
the outbreak of hostilities could become a matter of understanding whether or not and to what extent the other side would accept a given outcome as just or fair. The interplay of intelligibility regarding what could count as justice was thus inherently a part of any encounter. So let me turn to the idea of local variability and ebb and flow, because this is the perspective that animates the volume. And we contrast this perspective to two other pictures or narratives, that of improving understanding and persisting incomprehension. What we want to do is emphasize the extraordinary variability in how and why and under what circumstances different groups of colonists and natives came to understand or fail to understand features of each other's ideas of justice. So we see a terrain of tricky and always unreliable footing. We don't favor a narrative of ever-growing familiarity or persisting minimal comprehension, nor even an agreement to disagree, which are all possibilities that presume some kind of endpoint. Rather, we look for ebbs and flows, reversible gains, and a kind of permanent tenuousness. So what makes for local variability and ebb and flow? There are a lot of factors. Let me just briefly mention, say, four of them. So first, in English America, natives maintained a variety of different relationships to the colonist law, depending on geography, and also depending on whether they belong to an independent nation or to a tributary Indian nation, or they lived as individuals in the core area of settlement without a tribal tie. Second, in Spanish America, uh, the quality of legal experience had less to do with independence or tributary status as such, because all indigenous people were vassals of the Spanish king and entitled to his justice. But law did tend to vary quite strikingly by geographical distance from viceregal capitals, which were initially uh, Mexico City and Lima. Third factor, intermediaries and brokers between indigenous and settler cultures developed much better appreciations of each other's legal commitments than did average people. And finally, communities were not stable. They kept being reconstituted on both sides, both the settler and native sides. So in English America, war and disease decimated first one, then another Indian nation, and survivors integrated into more stable neighboring tribes or formed polyglot villages mixing families from several nations. The refugees brought different levels of knowledge about English justice. They had dissimilar experiences with it and different strategies for engaging with it. Among the settlers, there was ongoing large-scale European immigration and transportation of Africans. All of this continually introduced people with little understanding of Indian norms of justice, and Europeans, of course, were moving among towns and colonies. In Spanish America, native villages emptied out on account of disease, and by the late 16th century, the uh, viceregal governments responded by creating congregations to concentrate dispersed people into single communities that could sustain themselves, but also be available as a pool of labor. So this continual reconstitution of indigenous and European communities introduced new sources of confusion as everyone was straining to understand each other's notions of justice. The pursuit of legal intelligibility wasn't a challenge only for the first generation after contact. This is not a challenge that fades. Rather, it was a persistent challenge. 
one that was always present and never overcome. In local situations across Ibero-America and British America, what roles did intermediaries and colonists play in the variability of legal intelligibility and legal unintelligibility among settlers and natives? What is the significance and insignificance, in your estimation, of unintelligibility? So intermediaries are absolutely critical. You know, if one assessed degrees of intelligibility or unintelligibility at the level of entire societies, one would create a misleading picture. So instead, we like to focus on local settings, social settings at, at the local level. And within each local context, intermediaries and brokers uh, achieved vastly better understandings of notions of justice than did average people. So where did these intermediaries come from? In English America, you get them from intermarriage, from longstanding trade relations, from Indian apprenticeship and Indian enrollment in colonial colleges. These created partially or fully bilingual natives and settlers who could understand cultural commitments, including legal ones. Now, Jenny Pulsifer's chapter on uh, John Wampus is a study of one such broker. And Wampus familiarized himself with both native and settler concepts of land tenure, distribution, and sales, and became quite good at switching opportunistically between them in his career as an untrustworthy intermediary. In Spanish America, meanwhile, intermarriage, commercial dealings, patronage, and local politics created a whole class of people who operated in a mestizo or intermediary space between Spaniards and indigenous people. In both imperial realms, um, interpreters at trials and interpreters at negotiations were intermediaries, and they sometimes served as lay attorneys and advisors. In New England and the Middle Colonies, Christianized Indians did a lot of this work. And through the 17th century and fading slowly in the 18th century, uh, sachems and headmen uh, mediated natives' experience of colonial justice. They advised Indians behind the scenes and conveyed damages and represented litigants or defendants or spoke for the nation as a whole. They also observed proceedings and reported back on what English uh, justice meant or what they thought it meant. Um, a handful of natives served as judges and constables within English towns, within, sorry, Indian towns within English colonial borders. And these folks acquired a deeper understanding of English justice, a justice that they variously enforced or melded with traditional Indian norms or quietly subverted. In New Spain, caciques and local leaders would meet in the cabildo to discuss matters of legal importance. Um, and earlier successes seem to have encouraged attempts to have their grievances heard or to seek protection against prospective harms. Now, turning from Indians to settlers, there were particular colonists who were active as intermediaries. So there were English judges and commissioners who worked with natives to govern 17th century Indian towns. There were guardians that colonists appointed over in Indian communities in the 18th century. And these folks came to appreciate indigenous norms of justice, even when they compromised with them or ignored them. And on the Spanish side, Brian, do you want to say something about that? Yeah. So um, the the story is the story is recognizably familiar um, and yet also different on the Spanish side. Indian towns, for instance, in the Spanish Empire, 
might develop long and intimate relationships with uh, people who were no were, were people who were called procuradores de indios, that is to say, local Indian advocates. Uh, these were men who sat outside the courts, and they made their money by representing native claims um, before judges and tribunals. Now, these men very often spoke native languages uh, as, and, and had a, at least a, uh, a smattering of legal knowledge, um, and they very often spared no effort to ensure indigenous litigants were heard and handled according to their law. After all, the, the, representing the Indians before the tribunal was the way in which they made their living. So they had an incentive to, to do well by the Indians. Now, no less important than these procuradores de indios, these, these advocates who might be more or less informal, were royally appointed protectors of the Indians, what were known as protectores de indios, who also might mediate between Spanish settlers and indigenous litigants. Now, the protectores might bring a case on their own initiative, responding perhaps to uh, a notorious injustice, or they might do so in response to a request that, 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 um, that a case be brought. And in doing so, they might be quite steadfast on behalf of Indian complainants um, in keeping with their role as the king's representative of the Indians before royal tribunals, or, and, and we know this from the, from the sources and from the historiography, they might just as uh, easily bend process and principle toward their patrons in local society. This tension between the principles of royal justice and the call of, uh, of, of local power is one that remains uh, constant throughout the colonial experience. Now, in these cases, thus, it, it precisely because we're talking about specific kinds of individuals, individual personalities mattered. Um, it, it mattered whether you had someone who was well-versed in the ways of law. In other words, it mattered whether you had a good lawyer. Um, and it also mattered um, whether, uh, you know, what the local political dynamics were. The, this entire conversation thus was premised uh, on, on efforts to understand what contending parties were up to and why they were up to it. Um, and, there, and we can see some of this in Graubert's piece as well. She does a very nice job of sort of drawing out these kinds of threads from the background fabric of, um, of, of legal encounters. Yeah, let me just add one more quick thought. So there's a temptation to ask, to what extent does a community, a community of natives or settlers, find the other's law intelligible? But I th we think this poses too indiscriminate a question, which is why we want to break down community and search for intermediaries um, and brokers and those with specialized knowledge. If possible, can you compare the first section's essays on misdialogues in Portuguese America and code switching in British America with uh, Professor Graubart's essay on Andean indigenous communities and the innovative mixing of legal languages. Sure. Let me, let me take a crack at that. As, as, um, as Tamar Herzog notes in her essay on Portuguese America, some indigenous people in Brazil who came to legal encounters were neither interested in nor likely to be familiar with the precepts of Iberian law. As much as anything, they were guided, and this, and this is directly from her essay, quote, guided by what they considered just and what they perceived to be possible. And there's a, there's a sharp tension between this question of what one perceives to be just and what one perceives to be possible. It's the interplay between rooted norms, justice, and interests, what was possible, 
uh, that is characteristic of virtually all the legal encounters that are that are uh, discussed in in the book. Herzog argues that the Portuguese and indigenous interlocutors came to their encounters with different conventions that produced misdialogues, or what she calls a uh, she calls them misdialogues, and then she characterizes this as a true cacophony. They really were not making sense to one another. Now, this didn't happen because they failed utterly to understand each other, um, but rather because they wanted different things. Indians sought to protect autonomy and independence. The Portuguese wanted to reduce them to vassals, um, that they might be better exploited uh, rather than that they be protected, as the Spaniards might have, might have uh, insisted. This misdialogue, at least in the, in the Brazilian case, was the essence of their encounter. Now, by contrast, in Graubert's essay, which is set in the 16th century Andes, so up in, up in Peru, uh, where arguably Spanish law had penetrated more deeply than in Brazil, though perhaps not quite as robustly as in Mexico, um, Andean communities sought to defend collective identities through collective action. Indigenous actors sought strategies to reinforce their notions of what was right, of justice, in a changing world, which meant that they had to learn the new legal language of vassalage, its rights, its obligations, the procedures by which to make good on it. But they did not simply adopt Spanish ideas whole so much as they adapted them, creating thereby a new approach to law as they were simultaneously learning to navigate a new political economy. Their, and this is what Grauber calls it, their code switching, and this is a term that's adapted from linguistics, which describes an alternation between um, or mixed use of distinct languages, like Spanglish, for instance, um, this code switching meant that they were constantly attentive uh, to how their own understandings of justice might be realized through Spanish concepts and procedures, as well as Spanish notions of, of justice. The question then became, how can we bring these two sets of ideas into communication with one another? Now, the, the contrast implicit in the question is an interesting one, because it allows us to see very different pictures of what indigenous people might have been after. Uh, the indigenous people for Herzog appear to have felt that their interests were best served by not allowing themselves to be integrated into Portuguese vassalage, and therefore they had relatively limited incentive to, to try to make sense of what the Portuguese were asking of them. In Graubert, by comparison, the idea seemed to be to figure a stance within the social order that would allow them to maintain a sense of collective identity and yet nevertheless enjoy the protections of being vassals of the king. To a large extent, these were distinct outcomes, um, and they were a matter of, of, of the setting and dynamics in play in those particular circumstances. But in both, notions of justice were in play, for just outcomes could not uh, uh, be, uh, avoid interaction with European interlocutors. And that was the, the, the fundamental lesson that, that indigenous people uh, came to learn over time. In the second section's essays, how and why do the imperial contours of ideas and practices, such as covering the grave, liberal citizenship, and corporate native rights vis-a-vis -vis, uh, tributary regimes, demonstrate both the variance and commonality of notions of justice in the shifting legal spaces of Ibero and British America? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take a crack at this. One, one impulse that comes through powerfully in virtually all of the essays in the volume is the extent to which Indians, native peoples, sought to carve out a sphere of autonomy for themselves. And as, as we just discussed, 
what autonomy meant um, could vary dramatically from one situation to another. So as in Herzog's case, it was through misdialogue. Um, but for most of the cases in Spanish America, this implied uh, some notion of some sense of, uh, of inclusion in a Spanish indigenous social order governed by legal ideas that were always in the process of being created, uh, at least through the 17th century. In British America, it appears to have meant an insistence on remaining apart. This, this, this desire for autonomy uh, seems to have meant an insistence on re remaining apart from the English social order, or at least interacting with it from arm's length. Now, one point we made um, in the introductory essay, um, uh, it's uh, rather one point we didn't get to make in the introductory essay, but it occurs to me now is that part of the problem we face is precisely that we so easily refer to British America or Portuguese America or Spanish America as though these were obvious labels that require no discussion. Uh, and this is why in the title, in the subtitle of the book, we make a point of, of, of indicating that there is also an indigenous America that is often not uh, spoken of. Is there an Indian America or an indigenous America? Um, this is a complicated question because before the arrival of Europeans, there, there were no Indians except in India. Uh, the, this is a misnomer, and the very misnomer of indigenous people in the New World is part of the problem, because arguably uh, it, it reflects the desire to, to lump together peoples who would not have, see them, have seen themselves as being part of a single group, um, and certainly lump them together in ways that none of them would ever have done themselves. I'm not sure there's an obvious answer to this conundrum, um, at least not right now, um, but I do think it's worth thinking about. But what it does suggest is, 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 that, is how important it is that we pay attention to uh, normative assumptions regarding what constitutes law, because those kinds of assumptions remain deeply etched in the scholarship. Uh, and, and you can hear this in phrases like rule of law and whether this legal culture or that legal culture has something like rule of law. Now, in a sense, these normative assumptions are of a piece with British settlers' doubts about whether the barbarous Indians truly had law at all. Settlers would often say, yeah, but the barbarians don't really have law. That was generally not so much an issue uh, in Spanish America, although it was not unheard of. But this is one of the points that we propose for future research. That is, can we better understand indigenous America and make better sense of indigenous law than we currently can. And our sense is that, that this is a challenge that's going to benefit from some deep cross-disciplinary conversations with our colleagues in anthropology, because I'm not sure that historians alone are going to be able to, to, to give a very good answer to this. Can you briefly respond uh, to Professor Lauren Benton's concluding argument and advocacy for categories of analysis that address a purported disconnect between legal intelligibility and a genealogy of understanding conceptions of justice. Benton's essay is a reminder that as we begin to open our analytical aperture to what we call legal intelligibility, we have to take care not to forget the central relevance of what she calls patterned strategic behavior in new world legal encounters. That is to say that people act strategically, they act to advance their interests and so forth. Um, indeed, it's impossible uh, to think about the kinds of encounters that run throughout the book without being concerned for what participants seek to gain through what we call cunning and tactical maneuver. Our point 
is that a, a thick analysis of legal encounters, especially intercultural ones, such as the ones that we deal with, must account not only for what Benton calls jurisdictional politics, which she and, and Professor Ross explored at length in an earlier volume edited by, by the two of them. The title of the volume was Legal Pluralism and Empires, 1500 to 1850. Um, but, but also for the sorts of questions we raise in this volume. So advances in historical understanding come as historians ask new questions and propose new ways of answering them. That's our goal in this volume, not to displace other ways of thinking about legal encounters across lines of cultural difference, but to add to them, to enrich our capacity to think them through with nuance. So as we make clear, or as we hope, intelligibility is not an endpoint of historical process, but a persistent challenge and struggle. To that extent, it's, it's a kind of background condition um, and concern as parties through time, sought to understand the roles in encounters with each other and to make sense of what was possible. Conceptions of justice undergird virtually all legal systems as a set of norms and expectations regarding what it means for conflict to play out in specific kinds of ordered encounters. As Herzog notes in her essay, if we do not refer to what she calls, in quotes, deep-rooted conventions and normative structures, then all we end up with is, um, is that we see senseless movement. We're not really seeing the why behind the, the, the how of, of, of what goes on. Now, put another way, strategic behavior without reference to underlying normative ideas is an unnecessarily thin way of approaching encounters to which human beings have always imparted deeper meaning. No one really thinks that the only thing that's at stake in legal encounters um, is, is simply the pursuit of interests. Of course, interests are at stake. But at the same time, we wouldn't have re things recognized as legal systems if people didn't think that there was something deeper underlying them. Our point is that the centrality of these deeper meanings can be brought into sharp relief through a comparative lens and by paying attention to what we call legal intelligibility. Yeah. Uh, Benton uh, contends it's uh, very hard to reconstruct a historical actor's understanding of legal ideas. That is, what a historical actor believed or thought, perceived, knew. So rather than seek this largely unrecoverable understanding of historical actors, she says scholars should instead reconstruct pattern strategic behavior, which arose through negotiations and conflicts over such matters as jurisdiction and protection. Uh, her perspective raises a question. To what extent can a historian reconstruct how natives and settlers engaged in strategic legal practices divorced from consideration of how those historical actors understood the rules and ideas that animated these pr strategic practices? So let me give an example. Um, so imagine a Seneca Indian in 1700. How well could he have read the legal political constraints of English criminal justice and engage in strategic claims making if he didn't appreciate, say, the difference between a grand jury and a trial jury, or if he didn't comprehend the rules applied in each, or if he didn't know why the English attributed political significance to each? Would not this Seneca Indian negotiating with scant understanding of English legal ideas be exposed to a greater chance of failure? or unanticipated results, and be more likely to provoke anger or contempt? 
So those questions suggest why our volume under the rubric of intelligibility fuses historical actors' comprehension of ideas and practices. So we treat the two as mutually constitutive. Natives and settlers use their incomplete appreciation of the other side's legal norms as an aid to reading those practices. And from observation of practices, they inferred underlying ideas. Let me let me just add one other thought um, that would uh, bring it also into the into the Spanish world, and this is a concrete example that comes from Echeverry's chapter, which is an interesting one, precisely because it's the only one that crosses the boundary between colonial um, and and national um, uh, history in the Spanish American context. After uh, New Granada or, or, or Colombian independence. The new Creole elites and legal reformers who took charge of the nation quickly turned to novel legal ideas regarding equality before the law. They were, in essence, adopting sort of liberal notions of, of rule of law and equal citizenship. Now, from this perspective, they simply found they could make no sense of persistent indigenous calls to continue to remain vassals of the king and at the same time even to continue paying tribute to the king, which is something that the indigenous people in Colombia did for some time. Now, even as this was happening, indigenous communities were willing to draw or at least engage with liberal ideas, especially those that some of, some of which had been laid out in the, in, the, in the Cadiz Constitution in 1812. But in drawing on that liberal constitution, they were doing so on terms um, involving older ideas and practices that had been worked out during centuries of encounters as vassals of the Spanish kings. The Creoles misunderstood, that is to say, they found unintelligible this stance, in part because they had, they, they had rejected these older ideas as contrary to natural human reason. Why would anyone choose to continue to pay tribute to the king, was their question. What new national elites did not grasp was precisely that indigenous people were capable of adapting their legal understandings to novel circumstances, beyond merely as a kind of strategic response to their situation. Arguably, this is what they had done throughout the colonial period. A purely sort of interest-driven or strategic approach to this encounter would not reveal this nuance in the ideas and practices of indigenous peoples in a context like this, because the argument would be there's really no way to get at it. We're, our, the volume aims to sort of push this idea um, and to try to get historians to explore these kinds of ideas uh, seriously. Now, in the last essay, Professor Daniel Richter argues that complicated imperial relations often resulted in commensurable goals for myriad imperial agents, settlers, and indigenous peoples, to the point that such complicated relations were the norm in history. Yet Professor Richter also contends that in many generalized cases, incommensurability did not necessarily denote unintelligibility. That is, in exceptions to this norm, incommensurable goals for all parties could trump intelligibility in a given historical moment. So in, in these contexts, how and why did indigenous peoples acquire legal personality, commensurate and incommensurate with heterogeneous legal spaces in Ibero and British America? Yeah. So Richter's essay um, contends that indigenous and European people were capable of making the other side's legal systems intelligible when it was in their mutual interests. The problem arose when there was no such mutuality. 
And this lack of mutuality, he continues, was quite common on account of the fundamentally incompatible aims that indigenous and colonizing people often sought through the legal systems and the profoundly different scales of value they assign to terms like justice and rights. So overall, he argues that incommensurability was more significant than the challenge of intelligibility. So in support of this perspective, in support of the idea that incommensurability of aims was more important than intelligibility, uh, Richter provides some very well-chosen examples, records of negotiations in middle 17th century Virginia, uh, North American treaty conferences, and transcultural legal adepts like John Wampus, the subject of Pulsifer's chapter. But it strikes us that these examples share some common features. Uh, The negotiations in Virginia and the treaty conferences featured repeat players discussing issues where law met statecraft, like the provision of soldiers or compensation for losses in war or maintaining alliances. But what if one chooses other examples? So instead of sachems and chiefs and governors and Indian agents, imagine ordinary natives and settlers or recent immigrants from Scotland or the Rhineland or Indians in a newly constituted village assembled from refugees of several different indigenous nations. Suppose that natives negotiating with colonists heard vaguely that settler courts sometimes accepted oral testimony and sometimes demanded written evidence, and they allowed the breaking of contracts because of some excuses but not others, and they used mediation sometimes and adversary procedure at other times. What then? So if you switch our focus from high-status, experienced, repeat players discussing the intersection of law and statecraft and switch to ordinary colonists and natives negotiating with only an incomplete understanding of their interlocutor's legal commitment, well, this makes sense of the befuddlement that we see in the historical records. Uh, The English are often complaining that they don't understand what's going on. Uh, The English sometimes report that Indians are talking to uh, uh, complain that they can't understand the way of the settler procedure. Now, some of this incomprehension was feigned and tactical, and some misunderstandings were certainly creative, but surely not all of it. To switch focus from Richter's examples to ours is not to question the reasonably high levels of intelligibility that he found in treaty uh, conferences, But rather, it's to emphasize, as we like to do, that judgments about intelligibility vary significantly according to context. Historical actors negotiated and manipulated law even when they didn't understand each other's legal cultures well. And we believe intelligibility does not generally recede behind incommensurability. So Richter's essay, like Benton's, invites us to clarify some central points we're trying to make about legal intelligibility. Uh, Brian and I do not assume a linear model, such as a general movement from incomprehension towards understanding. Rather, we expect ebbs and flows and reversible gains because the colonial encounter featured new immigration, contacts of previously separated people, death and replacement of trusted intermediaries, and the continual reconstitution of communities. In certain situations, historical actors engaged with reasonable fluency in claims-making about incommensurable aims, but even for them, intelligibility was fragile and fraught. 
Overall, intelligibility varied widely among different people in a community and according to the familiarity and complexity of the issues at stake. Parties were given to mistake. They could be overconfident as surface acquaintance with an interlocutor's law masked deeper ignorance about values and history behind an idea. Intelligibility was always in play. It was never complete. It was never completely lacking. But behind every judgment of, about intelligibility are a whole set of implied questions. Who, what, where, when, for what purposes? So we believe that when one attends to the perennial challenge of, in, of intelligibility, you don't displace, but rather enrich the study of negotiation and strategic manipulation of law among natives and settlers with incommensurate uh, values and agendas. Yeah, and let me just add one one final point here, Ryan, um, and and that is that we we also feel quite strongly that we should not suppose that all legal encounters were inherently conflictual. Interests could be at stake in a given situation, and yet a degree of mutual comprehension could be the basis for some sort of mutually agreeable settlement. Um, this might happen, for instance, in land cases in Mexico, where non-competing uses were possible, say a split of usage that during the growing season uh, for indigenous communities, Spaniards would be allowed to, uh, would be, would be, would agree to keep off, keep their livestock off the land in question, but that during the winter, when the communities were not growing crops, that the Spanish might be allowed to pasture their livestock on the land. This is not something that was a direct confrontation of different notions of, of ownership and property so much as, as it was a way of working uh, toward some kind of a mutual uh, point of agreement. That, that also required a level of intelligibility in order to arrive at it. It wasn't simply a matter of conflict. Moreover, as Grobert's essay shows, what happened between Spaniards and Indians in cases that involved Indians, say, uh, Indian complainants against Spaniards, that what happened between them could become interdependent with local justice within Indian com indigenous communities. That is to say, what indigenous people learned in their interactions with Spaniards might very well come back to the indigenous communities themselves as notions of justice were, uh, were, were considered to resolve local problems, local legal issues. Incommensurability, the kind of incommensurability that Richter is arguing for by itself would be very hard-pressed to account for that sort of outcome. Um, intelligibility as an analytical lens, uh, Richard and I contend, um, enables a, a wider angle uh, or a wider angle view of possible encounters. And that's what we're, we're pushing, this sense of the, of, the, of the deep importance of context in understanding how these encounters played out. Well, I appreciate your time today, professors. I have an additional question for both of you. Can you at this time disclose any future projects, any uh, future vacations after this uh, collection? Uh, Professor Ross? And well, Richard, I think, I think you've, got, you've got something coming up. Well, I'll I'll start out. Um, so I'm as far as future projects. Um, I'm working on a book uh, with my friend Stephen Wilf at the University of Connecticut um, on uh, the rule of law in early America. Uh, it's called the American Rule of Law: A Comparative History, uh, which is under contract with Yale Press. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm also working on a book, uh, Ryan, and this one uh, sort of shifts focus a bit. 
uh, away from law and towards something like political economy. Uh, the working title of the book is Gain and Transformation in the Land Without Evil. Uh, it has to do with what happens when Spanish notions of, of, of gain uh, intrude upon the lives of people whose economic lives had not been organized according to uh, principles of, of gain, but rather principles of, of gift and reciprocity uh, in the context of Paraguay, um, and which is precisely where the, the Jesuit in uh, Guarani uh, missions emerged, in part as a response to the failure of law through the 16th century. And then the narrative arc continues to the 18th century when those, um, when those missions are essentially destroyed by what we might think of as, um, as free market or market reforms um, that aimed to make the indigenous people into individual laborers, individual property owners, and people who would, um, who would seek to better themselves through display. So it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of a shift to political economy with, with similar questions of, 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 uh, of, of, of justice at, this, at the core of the project. Well, thank you, professors. So this has been a uh, New Books Network production on the Native American Studies channel. This is uh, Brian Tripp signing off 